Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. episode for you today to snack on. All right, so we have a bunch of different amazing snacks from 2020. So I'm doing a montage today, yes I am, of um, some of the best interviews and just little snapshots and portions of these interviews um, in 2020. So I really actually had a lot of fun going back through and listening to a lot of these and seeing, wow, so much did happen in 2020. And just some of the interviews we did even in March, in May, you know, um, in 2020 when the world looked very different than it does today, uh, you know, and just hearing how people pivoted their businesses and how they pivoted their nonprofits and seeing that those things still apply to us today and the things that we can still learn from kind of reflecting back on 2020 now that we're not in the midst of the then, we're in the midst of today, of course, but looking at it from a different perspective. And it was actually kind of a healing process for me and it was really, really cool. So I hope that you enjoy this as much as I do. In today's podcast, then you're gonna hear eight different people talk about you know different snippets from the interviews that we had some of them were the most high highest listening podcast in 2020 as well um and we do cater a lot to people talking about different things that nonprofits were addressing in 2020 as well as the different things that freelance grant writers and freelance nonprofit consultants were addressing in 2020 and like i said that still applies to us today so i hope you enjoy this once again as you listen to eight people and all the eight people that we have on today we're starting with Jenny Hargrove. She has the nonprofit Jenny podcast show. She is absolutely amazing. I love her so much. Um, Angela Brerin, she is one of the co-founders of Instrumental, a grant research platform. She is also excellent. Um, all of these people are. I just love them all to death. And of course, we have Sean Kosofsky, and he is really great. He is the nonprofit fixer, and he's going to be, the excerpt I pulled today is a lot on, he talked about meetings, members, and the money of nonprofits. And of course, Mr. Voulet. So I was actually really honored to interview Voulet back in person in 2019, but we released the episode in 2020. And if any of you guys read the blog AF Nonprofit, it is his blog and it is absolutely fantastic and so funny and spot on. So if you need some nonprofit kind of outlet that you wanna find, some great articles he has on there, really awesome stuff so he's great um so he's going to talk a little bit about his blog and then of course we have sean croxton and he has the quote of the day show podcast wonderful he does a lot about money mindset and he's going to now pivot us into the freelance discussion today in our montage as he talks about pricing how do you price your services And then we have Omatola Akinsola. She is actually one of my members. She um, took, or she's one of my students. She took my freelance grant writing master course. And since then has 10X her income, her revenue in her business. So she's gonna talk a little bit about how she did that and how she continues to do that as a snip I pulled up from that 
Um, it kind of talks about pricing as well. And that is one of the questions I do get from a lot of freelancers and aspiring freelancers is how do I price my services? So I thought those were really important to talk about, especially in our new virtual world. And then finally, we have to sum up is with Rodney Walker and Dr. Beverly Browning. So we actually had in May of 2020, we did a live Zoom call, which I then recorded and put on a podcast and it was really popular. And it was basically to say, hey, is everyone freaking out right now <laughs> because of you know the pandemic and how do you do your business? Should you even be, can you even be charging at this point in time? All of those things, all those questions that people had. So they spoke about a couple of different things that are really important to um, how they pivoted their businesses and they actually still continue to pivot their business in this way today. So they're gonna share about that. So once again, I just loved interviewing all these people. It was so great to go back through and to listen to these again and to pull out some of the highlighted clips to share with you as we start off our fresh journey in 2021. So if you want more information, definitely jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 152 so then you can get um, the full podcast links if you want to hear the full podcast on each one of these. Once again, I just pulled out excerpts from these podcasts um, that are full, so full sessions that you can go back and listen to. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Now, what about during this time? Like, this is a very unprecedented time. We're in the pandemic. Um, and, you know, like looking at do these things still apply or how can they be kind of different as far as like, you know, maybe doing um, wanting to serve a different need right now or wanting to kind of grow yeah. or branch out just because of your, you know, you're not face to face anymore. Your programs have kind of changed. Um, how can you kind of see, you know, and use market research during this, this time? Man, that's such a good question. And I think like the first thing that I really want to emphasize, which is something I emphasize all the time on my podcast is the power of collaboration mm -hmm. or at the very least cooperation. So, um, okay. I, my hometown is Nashville, Tennessee, and we kind of got hit with this like one, two punch because we had these horrible tornadoes blow through a couple weeks before the COVID pandemic began in the United States. And so it was like, we had major parts of town just totally demolished and disappear, literally disappear because of these horrible tornadoes. Mm -hmm. And so we've got all these nonprofits who are quick trying to like make a rapid response. And then all of a sudden we've got COVID-19 and it's like highlighting all of these inequities um, in our systems, in our healthcare, education, everything. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that was so hard for me as a consultant to watch was all of these nonprofits um, who had the best of intentions and wanted to do whatever they could to help with whatever resources they had, um, just make snap decisions about the ways that they were going to help without taking into account how other organizations in the area were also going to, to, to try to help and coordinating those resources. Um, so that the nonprofits that were in the best locations to help certain areas mm -hmm. um, were getting the resources they needed for that, whereas the other nonprofits maybe had better resources for like telehealth and things like that, and making sure that they were the ones who were using those resources well, right? Yeah. So fortunately, after a few weeks, there were efforts to sort of coordinate the response to COVID. 
um, and to the tornado relief. But for a while, it was just kind of madness where it was like mm -hmm. everybody just kind of show up and help, which I have to say is one of my favorite things about Nashville is like every single person and individual, the first thing they thought after the tornadoes of all the people I knew, it was like, we got to, we got to go volunteer. Like we're not seeing volunteer opportunities online yet. So we've got to just go to the end of the street and see what's needed and just start helping, so which amazing. is beautiful. Yeah. So amazing. Mm -hmm. But at an organizational level, we can't be like that as yeah. organizations, we need to coordinate and we need to be posting those volunteer, uh, opportunities online. Mm -hmm. We need to be the ones who are out there surveying and seeing what the needs are. And we need to have a working knowledge of what other entities are in the area who can help us help them, you know? Yeah, yeah that's exactly it. So my background is um, in writing, winning, and, and awarding grants. Uh, so I've been doing that for the past 14 years before starting Instrumental. Really started out with my first job out of college. I was a habitat restoration specialist at an environmental nonprofit. So I'm like a scientist, right? I'm in the field in coastal Maine, and I'm surveying habitat for salmon migration. But one of the things that often happens is when you are working at a smaller nonprofit, you might get tapped on the shoulder to, um, to write a grant. Mm -hmm. And so that was the case there. I was also writing grants for my own research uh, straight out of college. Um, that's how I kind of got the taste for grants and then found myself um, kind of working in a variety of other nonprofits up until most recently at the Global Fund uh, for Women in San Francisco. It was also uh, previously called the International Museum of Women. Uh, and there I was also working in, um, in the grant space. And so in that position in particular, mm -hmm. as a re-grantor, so as an organization that was receiving grants, uh, seeking grants, but also giving grants, that really showed me that there was like an incredible, well, one, incredible time wasted um, trying to find prospects, um, making sure they're a good fit, applying the whole process, like the pre-award process, which is so difficult. And I would spend a lot of time like in Excel sheets, um, doing this prospect research, like copying over like huge overviews and like all these deadlines and then creating lots of versions to share with my ED. Um, just to raise money for that particular initiative and then throw that away. Um, and so being in that position, I really um, saw how there was an incredible amount of inefficiency. Um, and I was also in San Francisco, which was really important to my story because San Francisco is like the center of technology, right? Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. Um, and so some of my friends uh, are engineers. And uh, one of my friends, Gary Monglick, uh, is an engineer and she was at Airbnb at the time. Um, she and I were talking about this issue, some of the troubles that I was having, the friction I was having in my work. Um, and she said, Hey, why don't you, you know, build an app that can solve this problem? Uh, so that's kind of how I started, um, you know, tinkering around and building different applications that would results would turn into instrumental. Uh, during that time when we were having those conversations, my friend, uh, Kat, who was actually working at UC Berkeley as a fundraiser, she was like, yo, I'm finishing up my MBA. And I really want to start a business. So if you, you know, come across any ideas, will you consider me? Um, and we were good friends and she's um, an amazing person. So when the ball started rolling with instrumental, I thought, ah, oh, Kat's the perfect person for this. Mm -hmm. She's got a background in fundraising. She has her MBA. She's ready to go. So Kat and I paired up. And then with Gari, the engineering brains behind 
instrumental. It was like a perfect storm. And we really like set out to tackle this space and, and create more efficiency through leveraging uh, software, a lot of the software that is used in other applications. For anyone who's listening who is a freelancer or if you're on a board or an ED, an executive director, I think one of the things to, to focus on is that whenever you're dealing with an organization, there's going to be culture, there's going to be history, there's going to be uh, promises. Like people joined the board because they believed that they were signing up for one thing and now you're about to change it on them. What do you mean I have to fundraise and actually show up for meetings? I never offered to do that. I was never told I, you're going to be pushed up against people who you're going to have people pushing back on any kind of change. Mm-hmm. And most efforts at change fail. So in my system, I kind of break it down into something very memorable and something easy to to you know, to, to manage, which is we talk about the members. The members of the board is the first big part of this, which is right. the carbon-based human people that are actually <laughs> making up the board. All boards right. are are people. It is the members. Right. It is who you get and getting the, the right people. You have to recruit them, retain them, and then remove them. This is how boards work. Mm-hmm. So the actual members of the board, all three of these are going to begin with an M, so it's easy to remember. It's the members, mm-hmm. it's the meetings, and it's the money. I and so that. the members of the board mm-hmm. are really the people and how you recruit them. Them, how you retain them and how you remove them is 80% of what you're doing on a board mm-hmm. in terms of board building and board retention. Then comes the mem- uh, the actual meetings. And this is like what boards do best. Boards mm-hmm. gather and they make decisions. And so when a board actually comes together and they look at the books or they decide on the executive director's salary or they pass a policy, boards largely work in person or in a meeting. You call the mm-hmm. meeting to order, you talk and describe stuff and you vote on stuff and then you adjourn. In those meetings, if you have bad meetings, if they run on forever, if you don't have committees, if you don't delegate well, they're just going to be spinning their wheels with endless meetings and you're going to just push everyone away. So you got to get the members right and you got to get the meetings right. And -hmm. then the final piece, which is the icing, is the money. Board members have to raise money overwhelmingly. Unless you're a board of a private foundation who's giving away money, you need to be raising money. Mm -hmm. And all my clients, even people who are like, no, we don't really need to. We do pretty well on fundraising without our board. I'm like, it is not sustainable. It is not good to have a board that doesn't have like skin in the game. So Mm -hmm. um, there are systems we put into place when we talk about boards that are, that help them along this path. The biggest part is a mindset change because board members are always like, I'm a volunteer. I'm just here to help. I shouldn't be forced to fundraise. Um, flipping that mindset is mm-hmm. is fundamental because people should see fundraising as a joy, right? Mm-hmm. I want to move resources from where they live to where they can change lives. I want to get money out of this rich person's bank account and into our bank account because right. if I can move wealth from where it lives to where it can change lives, I will change the world. So mm-hmm. seeing fundraising as a joy, as something that is wonderful versus a chore um, is part of the mindset change we have to give to, to fundraisers and board members. And then once you make the mindset mind uh, that shift then you can give them tools and in uh, some of the work i do we give away these amazing tools that are rooted in social science it's a little bit of peer pressure a little bit of road mapping a little bit of making people write a plan getting them to actually say i will do these four things by the end of the year and i am responsible for this and i have my whole team of the board looking at me there's some peer pressure there and if i can't deliver i will leave 
right? Mm -hmm. So you can have people leave on their own accord because they know they have it delivered on their promise. And there are tools that we use to make all of this work in a seamless way. And that's why uh, the webinar we're going to do together is about how do you transform your board in 90 days? It really is as simple as putting these things into place and getting people to change within 90 days. Oh, I love that. And I love that you have a framework developed. Um, I'm on a number of boards as well. And um, that's, that's always the thing is ex expectations. And everybody isn't really, a lot of times everyone's not clear on what their expectation is as a board member. Um, you know, so they're not, you, you don't have those conversations and some board members are like, oh, they don't show up as much. I'm pulling more weight. Or you have those kind of conversations too. So I love this, like, here's, here's like package, <laughs> here's like a framework on how to do that. So you're not kind of like stepping on people's toes or there's not like crazy weird things going on like personality conflicts you know kind of helps mitigate those things so do you have do you recommend then when um, boards are uh, then elected they come in and there's an onboarding process is that part of what this is yeah so a lot of boards aren't elected like there's this old model we have of like membership based organizations that somehow vote on their board that's actually a small part of nonprofits now usually what happens is someone just recruits you and then you're seated right but yeah that's actually so if you even had to go through an election then you'd have to actually have a campaign and blah 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 <laughs> but what happens is we grab someone and say oh my god i have four people leaving this year they're they're really bad will you just join all i need you to do is raise twenty five hundred dollars and attend 12 meetings and that's usually as much as people get yeah so what we use is something called a board agreement and a board mm -hmm. agreement is the one i call it the one the one tool to rule them all because it really is the one document that can solve like 19 different problems in a nonprofit. So a board Amazing. agreement is basically like a mini contract. I mm -hmm. say to a board member, listen, I expect you to have no conflicts of interest. I expect mm -hmm. you to do your job and do your work and I expect you to show up and fundraise, right? In exchange, I will do some things for you. If you want access to the staff to help you with fundraising, we'll provide that. If you want insurance to protect you while you're on the board, we'll provide that. If you want transparency to see the books, we'll provide that. Mm -hmm. These agreements are all in one document. So if you have to do your thing and I have to do my thing, it's all written up and everyone signs it at the beginning of every term or the beginning of every year. And then people, what happens is if they're not honoring the board agreement, you should bring this up at every single board meeting. How are we all doing with our board agreement promises, oh, like like fundraising, showing up? It becomes a norm. Like, oh, we're going to be talking about whether I'm actually adhering to what I signed up to do. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not doing it, I self-select. I just decide to leave. So you never have to have these difficult conversations like, hey, Jack, it's time for you to leave the board because yeah. you're not doing so. No one wants to, to have to have that conversation. They usually know it's time to go. They've broken the agreement. So it's a really fundamental different way of doing it. And the board agreement becomes a powerful tool in recruitment. Whenever you're having a conversation with someone to join the board, you show them the agreement. This mm -hmm. is what is going to be expected of you. No surprises. You'll sign this. You'll be held accountable to this. Are you in? right? Mm -hmm. That's usually not how boards work right now. It's mm -hmm. usually implemented later. So it's a recruitment tool. It is a retention tool because people feel good that they're held to high standards and then it's a removal tool. So it's the, it's the foundational piece of this. There's a lot of other things we use, but the board agreement is like the ace in the hole, right? Mm -hmm. And so we um, really do uh, use that as a foundational piece with every single board. Brilliant grant professionals are out there, you know, writing grants, mm -hmm. which I think is great. But we had to stop and think like, why are we just copying and pasting from one thing to another? And mm -hmm. why is so much money, as I mentioned in the keynote, like if, if a grant takes 10 hours and to write and there's 100, people, 100 organizations applying, that means 1,000 hours is spent. Only, if only 10 organizations 
get funded, that means 900 hours are wasted. Yeah. When we could have just submit a, you know, like our own master grant. Mm-hmm. And just that just has that's just excellent has everything and most a lot of the information is already on our website. It's yeah. right on our nine ninety. Mm-hmm. It's in our annual report that you can just download. Yeah. So why do we have to go through the rigmarole of translating things into different the whims of various different funders, which mm-hmm. is like oh I want my grant proposal to just be five pages, or one page or whatever when all that information. So it's okay to waste our mm-hmm. time the people who are doing the work, but it's not okay to waste the time of people reviewing grant application. Mm-hmm. It's, and that just send, sends the message that their time is more important than our time, even though we are the ones out there right. making the world better mm-hmm. by providing services and programs. Right. It makes no sense. So people ask me, well, if, mm-hmm. if we just get rid of grant ap- applications, what do we do? Yeah. Well, again, it's about foundations doing their due diligence and doing the actual work mm-hmm. of finding which communities that need. And it's going to be communities that are most marginalized, um, most affected by social injustice. They're not going to be the ones to write the best grant proposals anyways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm finding that out or wouldn't it be great we just all have a, a central grant proposal yeah or you know reversing this sort of like database why don't we just each just upload one grant application if funders they can just go and find all the information exactly they need to. if it was just all the same and they could just even be on your website so they could go and look yeah. for it that would be so much better like i totally that's <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, <laughs> mind blown. No, I love this conversation because I'm always in the nitty gritty of it, right? So to be like, no, why don't you just change your paradigm? And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is liberating because it is, it's frustrating. Even as I'm like, oh my gosh, you keep going back and forth, even negotiations. And can you just change the past tense to the, you know what I mean? It's really good. It is. time for yeah. the typo checking and all oh this stuff. Oh my gosh, And yeah. actually, it's, it's extremely patriarchal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's patronizing. Actually, had some friends who are grant writers who are like, oh, we didn't get this because um, we had a few typos, and they said that we 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 were not qualified or whatever. This is ridiculous. yeah. It's like because my grammar does that reflect my uh, ability to serve the homeless people or to you know serve women's needs or whatever. Like it doesn't. You know what I mean? So it's very interesting to be like, why would you marginalize off of that? You know, because they do. They do. They do. And it's based on suspicion. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we basically treat nonprofits the way the society treats poor people. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, we'll help you. You know, you're poor. We'll help you. We'll give you money. But we don't actually trust you to buy yeah. food. Because we think that you're just going to buy beer and hot Cheetos or whatever. <laughs> and so you can't buy, yes. you know. Yeah. And also, uh, you can only get so much so much support if you start like working and you you meet you go over the threshold and mm-hmm. we, we're not gonna we're gonna pull all the support from you it's the same yeah funders expect sustainability but if we have more than three or four months of, of reserve they're like oh sorry you don't need us because you have all this no reserve. you're good yeah you're good yeah no. and then we're like suspicious. but yeah but we need that money set aside we need general <laughs> operating funds like <laughs> it should just all be general yeah it should funds. be all funding it should be multi general operating yes. funds You know, because you've been in the consultant space before, you've worked a lot with your own pricing on your different products that you sell. So, you know, how can people kind of understand, um, maybe not the science behind pricing, but the confidence and the value and the mindset behind that? Well, I mean, you have to value your work. If you're Mm -hmm. good at what you do, you should be paid really well for what you do. Um, There's no real like laws around pricing you know look at the competition Mm -hmm. or look at others who are doing what you do see what they're charging 
you know, mm-hmm. if people who are doing what you do are charging, I don't know, like, do you got, you get charged by the hour? Like, what do you do? What do you? Yeah, I can do either hour or I do packages. So I gotcha. do like this many grants, this much research will right. be a package or so, it's I mean, hourly. If, mm-hmm. if your, your standard uh, consultant is getting 200 bucks an hour, you don't want to be any less than 200 bucks an hour. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, if you feel like you're better or your, 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 your expertise is on a higher level than everybody else's, then you should charge more. And here's the funny thing about charging. It's, um, I remember reading this book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. I believe it's in the first chapter and he's talking about, I want to say it's been a long time since I read this, so I might botch this a little bit, but I think it was a gift shop in Sedona and there were um, underneath the glass there, there were necklaces, I believe. And somebody came in and was like, can I see that necklace? And, you know, the person pulled it out for him or for her. And she says, oh, wow, this is nice. She looks at the tag and it says $200. She says, I'll take it. And so he's like, okay. And he looked at the tag. He's like, oh, shoot. You know, in his mind, he goes, it's supposed to be $20, but somebody somebody, uh, mislabeled this and it's 200 bucks, but okay, let's do this. And so the shop owner added to, added a zero to all of the other tags for this necklace and they mm-hmm. started flying off the shelf, you know? And so we have to, and the, the moral of the story there is the more you charge, the more people value your service. And they mm-hmm. also believe that if you charge a lot, you must be really good. And right. so you're actually going to do a lot of people think, Hey, if I charge less, if I charge a mm-hmm. hundred bucks instead of 200 bucks, then it's going to guarantee that I get more clients. Well, number one, you start to feel bitter. You start to feel bitter <laughs> about the fact that you're only getting paid half of what everybody else is. And it's right. also kind of a, a chicken shit way to do business really mm-hmm. to charge, you know, to undercut everybody. So at least get paid what everybody else is getting paid. But I'm going to guarantee that the people who are getting the best clients and who are doing the best work and who feel the best about their work are the ones who are charging more than your standard consultant. And Mm -hmm. that's usually how it is in, in most industries. And if somebody ever asked you like, how, how do you charge 400 bucks per hour when everybody else is getting 200 bucks per hour? And you just say, well, that's what I decided my worth is period. And whatever you think, you know, don't that's what does Lisa Nichols say? Don't let someone else's lack of resources um, compromise your value, I think it is. And so if somebody can't afford you, they can't afford you. I'm sure they can go find somebody out there who's undercutting, but that client is not for you, you know? Yes, we love this sector. We want to help you. The best way we can do that is to hold you accountable to that dream and help show you the way and not lie to you to say, oh, we'll do it for free. When we know that in all instances, we're not showing up as 100% or we're not showing yeah. up the best way we can to help you. So, yeah, absolutely. So it's really important that you should invest in yourself. You should invest in your growth development. And the research shows the more nonprofit that invest in their fundraising efforts, whether through hiring a grant writer or consulting someone to help them, you get a lot of you will get the return back if you do it right. right. You always get the return back. Always That's a just return. You will yeah. And then how do you feel? Because this might be some of the fear too of people to say, well, if I charge, then nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to hire me. Or do you feel like you have fewer clients now or do you have more clients now that you're charging more? Actually, like this is, I love where I am right now. So I will be honest, like 
last month was like the biggest time that I had like a lot of like most of the chunk of the money like so like I have two young children so mm-hmm. it has been like some and then with the digital product and everything so in last month I was able to bring in over 10,000 and just through just four clients so that's amazing that's that was may of 2020 Mm -hmm. when and and that was just for the month of may alone that was like i said my clients are three month contracts so that means like every single month at least that is guaranteed of like that's amazing Mm -hmm. and so it's so it's not about the big number of people it's Mm -hmm. it's about who are the right people for you, the right fit for you, that you know that they will do their part. And when you yeah. do your part, the result is going to be exponential. And then also the digital product. So that's another. Yeah. So even while you're waiting for these big one-time or contract kind of done-for-you services, work on your digital product. Work on those yeah. smaller, low tickets, but they can be reoccurring and keep coming over and over again that you can now use. And then who knows, you can make... 10,000, 20,000 out of those digital products if you do it right and you market it right. And so even while you're waiting for those big ticket um, clients or people to come, don't think that, oh, it's a waste or like, oh, your time, you're not um, getting anything. Work on other parts of your businesses. Start thinking, okay, what other outreach where can i go to who can i uh, what services is a need that i can create that does not require my time or my energy and can mm-hmm. keep bringing in this income over and over again so that's something i did yeah. while i was waiting for this because like Ali said it was not easy at first i was like thinking like let me go back to the free course let me do it for free again and just feel as if i'm doing something that i'm <laughs> useful but i have to say no like i had to like catch myself to say no you need yes. to mm-hmm. another part of your business that you've been like you've not been paying attention to i need to yeah. restructure different things and everything and then start creating the digital product that i know that will be valuable and that i can always market even if maybe they did the call and they didn't want the full big service i can say you know we can start with this digital low ticket yeah. and apply it if it works for you they will always come back to you for the big one like well if this small one can bring me this return what will happen if i actually sign up for this i ticket one that she's offering me as well and so that's what i would say is like don't Think that oh because it's not like it will happen but yeah. just stay consistent um how has your business been impacted by COVID-19 great question uh my business is actually truthfully actually going up during this time and mm-hmm. it's interesting about a number of years ago I would say about three years ago before my mom passed away I was at my business was really centered on having a team of individuals and we would literally go and do trainings from Alaska to Hawaii to New York, Florida, California, Texas, all over. And that was the structure that I had business-wise. And during the past of my mother, I decided, you know, it's, I got time to get on a plane. Sometimes I was going on a plane, other time I was sending out consultants to those different areas. And I decided to re-engineer my business to make the business more of where I saw things going toward the future. And a part of that was bringing that and setting up a real strong base so that the business would be virtual. And so instead of boarding the planning, I was boarding an elevator to go downstairs to the conference room. And with that re-engineering, I had no clue about what would happen right now, but with it being set the way it is now, my business was really prepared to be able to deal with the impact of being online because I've been online literally for 
the last three plus years or so, even though I was on before that time, but really the, the bulk of the business was centered now with it being online versus having a physical presence. So the impact for my business personally has, hasn't, I haven't felt it actually, I've gotten a boost because I believe more people now are at a place where they're at home and they're, they're, there's more time focused online. So it's actually uh, had a strange beneficial impact. Right. Absolutely. And I, I've seen that as well. Um, you know, just because there's a lot more grants out there right now too, there's a lot of funding getting rolled out. So people are looking, how can we, how can we find grant writers? So having an established online presence, I can imagine people are finding you now, right? So you're, all of a sudden you'll see that spike, which is, and, yeah. And that, that's another reason too. I know I wanted a lot of you guys to come on the call today because a lot of you are new and you're saying, oh my gosh, is my business going to go under now? Actually for freelance grant writers, I believe your businesses will be going up right now. Um, Dr. B, did you want to lend to some of that? Yeah. Like, um, been impacted. Um, I know you've been doing a lot online as well. So if you could just kind of. Yeah, I was impacted actually before the pandemic. Um, I was a subcontractor for another grant writing consultant, and found out with about, I guess this was back in November, beginning November, um, that I was going to be taking a hit of losing $3,000 a month. And so I started to plan ahead in November. Um, at the time, I was devastated. And it's like, okay, um, I have to really be more strategic and you know what are the necessary expenses and what are the expenses that can go um, so I started preparing then and at the time I had no idea that we were going to be in a pandemic so that early on um, sort of oh my goodness what do I do because I need to have that revenue replaced and obviously Thanksgiving and Christmas is not the time to bring in a client that's going to pay that amount or more every month so by being ready, by the time the first of the year came, um, I just made a, a solid decision to change the way I do my business. Um, and I don't want to write grant applications every week or every day. Um, I want to be more creative. Um, I want to think outside the box. I've always had a lot of side services that I've provided. So I just decided to throw out all my rates. And when I got a telephone call from anyone saying, you know, we'd like to work with you, but we don't think we can afford you. I started saying on January 2nd, what can you afford? And I'll tell you what I'm able to do for that. So I'm doing some virtual board training, which is great. I don't have to leave home or, you know, drive across Phoenix to do that. Um, I also start, started in actually um, three weeks ago uh, uh, to write a new course, which will take me through the end of October with deferred revenues, which are good. Um, and I've just really cut back and chilled out. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Um, this was a really fun mashup for the 2020, some of the greatest on there. Once again, we heard from Jenny Hargrove of Nonprofit Jenny. We also Angela Brerin 
from instrumental Sean Croxton of the Quote of the Day show and also Sean Kosofsky of Mind the Gap and the Nonprofit Fixer. We also heard from Voulet of AF Nonprofit, really great blog, do check it out. And from Omatola Akinsola, and she is a freelancer, so do check out her stuff. She's amazing. And Rodney Walker from Central Grants USA, as well as Dr. Beverly Browning, the author of Grant Writing for Dummies. So great takeaway, little snippets today. If you love the podcast, please do leave a review on your podcast player. And also, if you want to check out the show notes so you can listen to the full episodes of any of these that we listen to today, check out grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 152. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.